0: We have to understand how God has created the world and God's plan and God's design and God's intention before then we can respond to these different issues. We have to understand what something is for before we can understand what am I supposed to do with it? Well, I remember the first time when I was asked to present on gender identity, male and female, to a group of high school students. And I think my first thought was like, I feel woefully unqualified. I, I, I haven't looked into this much. I haven't read. I haven't listened to stories. I haven't done my research. Give me some time. And I think I spent about six months researching before I felt like I at least had something to offer, something to share. That then led into a lot of conversations with uh, transgender individuals in classes and classes and conferences and camps, as well as a lot more reading on the topic, To which then led into a, a kind of a specialty study within my doctoral studies. So uh, if you don't know that I am uh, currently in my fit, I actually just finished my first year of doctoral studies, uh, focusing in on On kind of three big cultural issues being gender and sexuality, race and critical theory, and the church and political engagement. So within those three uh, topics, I had to choose one to kind of focus more in depth into and apply it to a current cultural issue. And so I chose to do a theology of the body. And applied to transgenderism. How is it that a theology of the body, what is it that scripture has to say about our bodies? And then how can that inform us as Christians in our response to? to issues related to transgenderism and transgender individuals. And so I just finished, I submitted it, and I am excited uh, to share with you today. Again, I still, even though I've studied this uh, in depth now for more than a year, I still feel like I'm still learning, I'm listening, I'm trying to understand, but I do feel like I've I've learned some stuff in, in evaluating different resources and different perspectives that I have something to share with the church to help the church and help Christians respond better. So that is my hope here uh, with you. And that is what I hope to do today in this show. And so hopefully that is something that is interesting to you. So with that, my name is Ryan Polly, and this is the show Think Well, training you to think well and engage the culture well. And so um, kind of jumping in to, to this idea, what, what stood out to me and why this is something that I wanted to focus on is as I was asked to present on gender identity and I began to read and research, I would have individuals that would come up to me and say, hey, what are you studying? And I would respond and say, well, I'm, trying to, I'm studying gender identity and how Christians should respond to transgenderism, with which I often received, or at least sometimes received, pretty simplistic, negative, unhelpful responses. See, I think this happens on both sides, right? When when we approach some of these cultural issues, right, this is so new in one sense, and it's so quickly changing. As I interviewed Christians and other individuals on this topic, I found that most people do not feel prepared to give a biblically accurate, thoughtful, loving response. Things are just changing so quickly. It's hard in our day-to-day jobs when we're dealing with families and we're trying to do our work and present our projects and and turn in all the things that we have to turn in to then also take the time to research this topic well enough to have well thought out grounded Christian convictions that can help us in our responses. And so what often happens is when we have more shallow convictions, that we've learned from other places or just kind of heard secondhand, it often leads to these simplistic slogans that are shallow, that are based on partial truths or incomplete truths that are often not helpful. So some things that like conservative Christians might say, um, you know, it says, well, God only made male and female. Well, that's true, what I hope to show you here in a little bit is that I think that it misses the bigger picture of God's story. Conservative Christians might also say things like, um, you know, find your identity in Christ. That's a good thing. I think that's part of the picture. Carry your cross, to which one transgender individual responded back to that, okay, but will you help me carry it? Right, with other sins within the church, um, yeah, uh, we, we come alongside those who are struggling in something and we help them bear their cross. But sometimes with this, trans individuals have said, no, I just have been told carry my cross and then I'm left alone to deal with it. Liberal Christians might respond by saying, well, God loves everyone or God just created everyone unique in their identity and we should celebrate all things or don't judge lest you be judged. And so each side has like, well, yeah, Jesus did say that, but it's missing something. God did create male and female, but we're kind of missing part of the picture. And so what I hope to show you today and how I've framed my research is this. There are truths and partial truths in each one of these statements, but it misses the deeper revelation of God's word. I think that when we respond within the context or framework of God's big story, the the meta narrative of the world or the big overarching story which is creation, fall, redemption. When we see ourselves in the bodies that God has created for us within creation, fall, redemption, I think it gives us a more robust, deeper understanding of God's creation, his intentions, his purpose, his plan, that then will give us a more well-thought-out, biblically accurate, faithful, loving response. And so while some of these, like I said, are, are true, that God created male and female, it stops with the creation aspect, and I don't think it takes into account the fall or redemption. And so this is kind of how I want to look at it. I want to address these kind of different arguments and help us understand that it, the story doesn't end just with God's creation, but God has a plan to redeem his creation. This includes redeeming our bodies. And we need to see it in this perspective. And so I've I've looked into this and I and I and I think that there are some helpful tools and things that we can learn as far as what scripture has to say. We also have a choice to make as Christians. That are we going to love people the way that Jesus calls us to love people, uh, or are we gonna kind of fall to maybe some of the pressures of society? I've, I've heard uh, people talk about this. If I just, I can't speak up. If I say something, it might upset someone. If I talk about uh, abortion at a church, there might be a woman who's sitting in the crowd who's had an abortion and it will make her upset. If I talk about transgenderism and there's a parent or a transgender individual in the crowd, it might make them upset. And I wanna respond by saying that that's true. It might. But there are two ways to kind of think through this topic. Number one is this. If as Christians we are called to, to, to even as pastors, to preach the truth, to, to recognize sin and different struggles that all people are dealing with, and if, if talking negative about committing adultery, is, if that, that is a sin, makes someone who's in the audience feels bad, then that's something good, in a sense. Because here's how the, the perspective of the person hearing us. If someone is in your audience who has or is living in sin or has committed sin and recognizes that as wrong and feels bad about it, then for you to talk about the seriousness of sin, and which makes someone, in a sense, feels bad, it it matches what they feel. And they will say, yeah, that's true. This was a serious thing that I, I messed up. I screwed up and I needed Jesus's forgiveness. However, if there's someone who's in the audience committing adultery and, and in unrepentant sin, then maybe they do need a perspective change and feel bad about it. And so there's an aspect in which we do need to call out sin, discuss issues, even if it might make someone feel bad in the crowd. At the same time, though, hear me clearly on this. There are ways of discussing this without compromising truth that doesn't just cause someone instantly to feel bad. I've spoken on transgenderism and a biblical view of sexuality, a biblical view of marriage with transgender students in the crowd to which I've received the response if more Christians spoke about it in this way, it would bring healing between the two communities rather than division. I think there are ways in which we can still present biblically true statements, biblically faithful statements with people there that are in that life and identify in those ways without inherently or, or uh, uh, automatically causing this divide. We can actually speak in ways that build bridges that people are willing to cross. The problem, though, that we see, and so that, that's kind of uh, hopefully the, the, the challenge in addressing this. The problem, though, is that there are some who see just a Christian view of morality, specifically sexual morality, as just being oppressive, outdated, and in need of being discarded. And so if you hold to these sort of views, Christians are often labeled as haters or bigots or people that need to be banished from the margins of, of society. That is one quote uh, there from Gerald Highstand in his book, Beauty, Order, and Mystery. So not all views are welcome in our society. I realize that. Um, but we also have to recognize this. It says here that one quarter of the people who were raised in Christian homes and walked away cited the treatment and teachings about LGBTQ people as a factor in their decision to leave the faith. That comes from Austin Harkey's book, who is a transgender man. Uh, he wrote the book, uh, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. If we recognize this as an issue, If we recognize this as a topic that is causing many people to walk away from the faith, a quarter of people to walk away from the faith, then that means that we have to realize how do we hold our Christian convictions and think deeply and think well about what Scripture has to say about our bodies so that we can respond well. And I think we have to take this deeper. One more kind of intro comment. We have to take this deeper um, in, in because of this. If, if, if our response is only to the kind of surface level behaviors or gender expressions, this is a quote, by the way, from Mark Yarhouse and Julia Sadusky. Uh, from their book, um, from their book something. I'll get you the name of the book here in a moment. Uh, it says, if you only re- respond only to what is above the surface, your approach will be severely limited. In our experience, you will tend to overreact to behaviors you find provocative, missing an opportunity to minister to the deeper needs and desires motivating these behaviors. Again, if we don't have well thought out, deeply formed convictions, then we often overreact to surface level behaviors that cause more division rather than getting down deep below the surface. And so you might get those around you to start changing their behaviors, but since you have not dealt with the deeper desires motivating those behaviors, you haven't really solved Problem, you're not allowing true healing to happen, and so we have to get below the surface to understand thoughts and emotions, and strivings and longings, and and the needs that each person has, and kind of what they experience. And so, this is kind of uh, what I hope to do. And so, the question did come in here so, where am I doing my doctoral studies? I'm doing my doctoral studies at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, uh, specifically. Working on a doctor of ministry and engaging mind and culture. And so the idea is to, to come alongside the church, come alongside Christians and helping engage their minds, thoughtfully engaging the cultures using theology, apologetics, and good ethics. And so, again, I kind of mentioned really quickly my my uh, stuff that I studied this year. And uh, next year, we're going to be looking at deconstruction, uh, applied ethics, um, artificial intelligence and technology, and then um, environmentalism and neo paganism. So, That's kind of what we're going to be looking at uh, next year. And it's a wonderful, really fun program. By the way, that Mark Yarhouse House book that I just quoted, uh, Emerging Gender Identities, Understanding the Diverse Experience of Today's Youth. Now, let me just stop here for a second as I've kind of given this intro and give a quick little pitch. Um, this is a paper that I have written and I hope to release this publicly to you uh, next month. I'm gonna be making it uh, available to everyone. So if you're watching on YouTube and you go in the description below, I think like the second link that I provide uh, says um, something about get more from Think Well or, or, or sign up for an email newsletters or something like that. If you go there and sign up on that link, uh, you will receive this paper when I make it available available. Uh, if you're listening on podcasts, you can go to my website, uh, or send me an email at Ryan at think well.org. Um, send me an email, say, Hey, I want to be signed up for the newsletter and I will add you in myself. Uh, the other thing is this is, is that today is giving Tuesday. And, um, and so today is actually the launch of my second annual end of year challenge uh, uh, where a group of very generous uh, monthly supporters have come to alongside and offered additional gifts totaling the amount of $13,230 to encourage other people and challenge other people to give and support the work of this ministry. And so from now until the end of the year, any gift that you give will be doubled uh, and help impact these, this, this world and help me kind of get out there and continue to train uh, Christians to engage these different cultural ideas. And one hope that I have is to expand on my paper, add additional arguments and evidences and points, as well as some very practical questions, and then publish it as a really small booklet kind of resource that can be given to parents, youth group leaders, uh, youth workers, whoever it may be, and kind of give them an overview of a theology of the body and how that informs our response to transgenderism. So I hope that if donations come in, Uh, and and this matching challenge works out well uh, that then we can then publish this material as a ready resource for the church to continue to kind of engage in these different ideas. So that is my hope, and that is kind of what is happening now. So if you want to participate in that, uh, you can go to think-well.org. There's the donate page. If you're on YouTube, you can go to scroll to the bottom, and I have some information there at the bottom uh, of the description. It'll kind of give you more information about this end-of-year matching challenge. So with that, let me jump into kind of how I I want to work through this topic. And the first one is this, is that it, we have to understand how God has created the world and God's plan and God's design and God's intention before then we can respond to these different issues. We have to understand what something is for before we can understand what am I supposed to do with it? All right, This is the big question I think that guides our conversations, and I've talked about it a lot on the show before, is our, our first question when we get something is not what can I do with it, but the question should be what should I do with it? And that question of what should I do with this is informed by how that thing was designed. So what I should do with my coffee mug versus what I should do with my iPhone is gonna be very different because of the different design and reason for which they were created. And so when I'm gonna to try to figure out what can I do with my body, what should I do with my body, what what does this body have to say about who I am? We have to go back to God's created design and intention of our bodies to have that deeper perspective. And so we have to go back to this. Now, this is going to be the main verse uh, that Christians will cite. And and if you ask a lot of Christians to say, where does the Bible talk about uh, gender and, and sexuality or sex? Uh, often the verse comes up is Genesis 1, where the creation account presents this truth that impacts our theology of gender and sexuality, where from the very beginning, humans are created in the image of God. And Genesis 1, states this. So God created man in, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so what's interesting and, and important about this passage is, is that it not only states that mankind is made in the image of God, but it also references that God created us, male and female, right? This is the first mention of biological sex. And, and what's Not only important there is, number one, biological sex is mentioned, but then the fact that both male and female are made in the image of God implies that there's something different about us. There is something distinct about male and female, yet also we are equal, right? God did not just say, I create humans in my image, um, but he made a reason to say, I create male and female. There's something different there between those two sexes, as well as both are created in his image, and so uh, Victor Hamilton, in the commentary Genesis and Evangelical Commentary of the Bible, says that we're all bearers of the divine image, and we bear that image in the diversity of male and female. And so, this is not uh, our 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 biological sex is not uh, an accident. It is not socially constructed. Um, it, it existed. And as part of us, before there was ever a society, our biological sex is of divine origin. And then we have to recognize with the creation account, that God looked on everything that he created and called it good, but when he looked at the divine image in humans, he calls this divine image very good. So there is an aspect in which God is very pleased with what he has done and how he has done it. So not only though, uh, Does Genesis one twenty seven teach about men and women being distinct yet equal? But it talks about maleness and femaleness being physically grounded. It's in reference to the physical creation. Your maleness and femaleness is, is, is built in and created into your bodies. It is not a psychological determination. And so this account in Genesis one twenty seven presents two biological sexes, not more. And it's not a spectrum, but it is a clear binary. Now, this is where uh, you have individuals like Dr. Dr. Christopher Yuan in his book, Holy Sexuality, says that Genesis one twenty seven conveys an undeniable connection between the image of God and the ontological categories of male and female, this deep sense of who we are. It goes to the very nature and being of who we are. And so this is highlighted then in God. Giving the command to Adam and Eve, the two individuals he made, male and female, in the next verse where he says, Therefore, then go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it in Genesis 1:27. We recognize that this built-in, created design was designed for a purpose. What is the purpose of our different distinct biological sexes, will they complete the reproductive system and give a difference to humans for the purpose then of procreation. The God created all things with an end purpose in mind, right? This teleos or teleology, this end goal or or purpose in mind. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, says if nature is teleological, meaning has a purpose, a built-in purpose, and the human body is part of nature, then it is likewise teleological. It has a built-in purpose, part of which is expressed in the moral law. A Christian ethic respects the teleology and of nature and the body. So this then has to prompt the question then, well then why has God designed men and women differently? Um, and and we recognize, and this is where there's kind of confusion of what is biological sex versus what is gender identity or gender roles. And And you can kind of, in one sense, as we'll talk about here as we work through this, in one sense they're very identical or very similar, but you could say, yeah, your, your biological sex is, is your anatomy, but your gender role or your gender identity is the way in which you see yourself and act that is grounded or based in your biological sex. So these, and put it this way, the, the different biological sexes determine your gender and gender roles. That is that human males grow into men, and potential husbands and fathers. And then human females grow into women and potentially wives and mothers. And so there is this way in which you are designed and your design then informs the way that you will act and the the potential things that you can do moving forward. Now, here's kind of where the first objection comes in from Austin Harkey, a transgender male, uh, who writes this idea that Genesis 1.27 does not teach a gender binary why let me jump down to uh, this section i'm taking this slightly out of order so i want to make sure i get here uh really quickly actually let me find it here some transgender advocates then claim uh that not all people are born male and female Uh, That Genesis one twenty seven does say God created male and female, but as Hartke claims, this verse does not discredit other sexes or genders any more than verses about the separation from day and night rejects the existence of dawn or dusk. So here's a really interesting kind of objection that 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 pops up in different ways. Uh, In Austin Hartke's book, it says you know then God said let there be marshes. I've heard others make the argument using uh, frogs. The point is this in Genesis one. Each day, God creates kind of these two distinct things in a sense, but it doesn't exclude things that come in the middle or beyond. So God creates day and night, but we have evening and morning and dawn and dusk. God creates the sea and the land, but we also have like rivers and we have marshes. So we have rivers that are kind of beyond just basic sea and land. We have lakes, but we also have marshes where it's kind of a mixture of land and sea. God created animals of the air, animals of the ground, and animals of the water. But then we have like amphibians that like kind of live in both places, like frogs and other animals. And so the the transgender advocate will often claim that this verse, yes, says God created male and female, just like it says God created day and night. God created land and sea and air animals. God created um, water and land. Um, at the, but none of those other categories. Are a strict binary. None of those categories exclude other things that are beyond or in between those. And so, just because, just like there is dawn and dusk and marshes, uh, there should also be different aspects of gender. So this is kind of the argument and the pushback to, to Genesis 1:27, saying, "Yeah, it does say that, but it doesn't necessarily exclude these other categories." Here's where I will push back on this. Um, I think that kind of creates like a hasty generalization or like a category fallacy. So a hasty generalization would be just because, uh, it, it, you know, three people wear glasses at school, therefore everyone probably wears glasses at school, right? You, you apply this generalized idea based on a select few examples or, or a category fallacy in the sense of, um, of, uh, uh, uh. uh a category fallacy would be when you ask the wrong category of question for the thing that you're talking about. So if I said, uh, what does the color red smell like? Well, that's a crazy kind of uh, question because red doesn't have smell. It has a look. Or if I said, what does the C note weigh? Like, oh. What does that weigh? Well, you can't ask what it weighs because it's not something that has weight. So if you ask what something weighs, the thing you ask about needs to be something that has weight. And so there's different categories that we can apply to it. And so I think that you could argue that this idea here commits a category fallacy in the sense of there are different categories of things. And we have to make sure that we're applying the right category of thing to what we're talking about. Now, the two things that I think that is related to here. Sorry, I'm grabbing something else that I'm. Realizing I'm missing, is that there are things that are what are called degreed properties and there are things that are non-degreed properties, right? So a, a degreed property is something that can come as more or less. So like loudness is a degreed property. You can have really loud and you can have very quiet. Softness and hardness are degreed properties. You can have harder and you can have softer. Uh, Wetness, you can have something that's damp and you can have something that's soaked. And so these are degreed properties in the sense that it's kind of a spectrum as far as where it comes. There's also what we would call uh, something that is a non-degreed property. Uh, This understanding would be uh, like the property of being even, Right, a number is even. You're, it's either even or odd there's no other option. Um, and so uh, the number two is even, the number four is also even. It makes no sense though, to say that the number two is more even than the number four. Uh, you can't have something more even or more odd than something else. And so uh, we recognize that, th- that there are different categories or different um, um, ways in which something can fit. You can be taller and shorter, you can be you know something harder, softer, lighter, darker, uh, wetter, less wet, dry. And these are all varying degrees, like God creating day and night, like marshes. there's wetland and dry land. These things are do come in a matter of degrees. And so the question then becomes. Is there good reason to believe that gender is like those other things that do come in a matter of degrees? Or is there reason to believe that gender is a non-degreed property, that you either have it or you don't, and there's no mixture or more or less? So male and female, you're just a man or a woman. And it's not more or less. And I think there's two arguments that you can make to show that gender and biological sex really is a non-degreed property. And the first one is is how do we define it? How do we define it? So this is gonna be a big question. And you often hear kind of like, what is a woman or "What? how do you define uh, uh, what a woman or a man is? And what is it based on? And people often say it's based on anatomy. Others will say it's based on chromosomes, you know, XX, XY. Um, I think there's an interesting argument. Deborah So is a a liberal uh, sex researcher who wrote the book, The End of Gender. And here's what she has to say. Humans are sexually dimorphic species with two types of gametes, eggs and sperm. Intermediate gametes do not exist. Since biological sex and gender are both defined by the person, by these parameters, gender is by definition like sex, either male or female, binary and not on a spectrum. And so if this is true, and if we we take this as one way to define... Uh, this this binary aspect of gender, and if your gender is based on the gametes that your body either produces or is oriented towards producing, then it can't be a spectrum. You either make a sperm or you make egg. Um, your body is either oriented towards making sperm or eggs. There's not intermediate gametes. There's not gametes beyond those two. Those are the only two. And if, again, God has designed the distinctness of male and female and then immediately given the command to go out and um, fill the earth, subdue it, and gives us command for procreation, then it makes sense that these are one of the defining, distinct characteristics between male and female is the gametes that is used in the act of procreation. So I personally have found this to be a very helpful way of, of defining gender. Uh, and we'll talk about kind of others and intersex and all these because all these others kind of can come with some, some, some difficulties. And this is a very simple way to say, look, there's only two, sperm and egg. And you're defined by your gamete because this is what has been built into you for the purpose then of procreation and why there is a distinction between us. Um, Now, with that, though, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say here really quickly? I don't remember. Okay. Oh, the other thing is this, the second argument for why it is uh, strict binary. If you try to make the claim that it comes on a spectrum, male, female, then then what, then you would have to say, then Then there has to be also a spectrum of what makes someone more of a man. So I remember once I was sitting there um, and uh, I was sitting next to a guy who'd just gotten married. And uh, someone asked, hey, anything happened this weekend? And he goes, yeah, I got married this weekend. And the person went, wow, congratulations. Now you're a real man. Now at this point, I was still single. So my first thought was, well, what does that make me? If he's a real man because he's now married, what does that make me as a single man? Am I less of a man than him? Is my son, who's only two years old, less of a man than me because he's younger, because he's smaller, because he's not as strong? Um, is there a way in which, like, or, or is it just male because you're male, because that is what your body is? The moment you start to say, I think, that it can fall in this spectrum where someone can, it, it is a degreed property, where it can come in more or less, then the question becomes, what makes you more of a man or less of a man? And then how can someone claim, oh, well, I'm a man? It's like, well, no, you're less, you know, it, it, there's, it creates all of these issues. And then the bigger thing then is if we attach value based on this, then do you start to matter more when you have more mass and matter? So if you're stronger, are you more valuable? So generally speaking, on average, women are are smaller than men? Do they matter less than men? Or do we go back to Genesis 127 and say, no, male and female are both created equal in the image of God, even though they have different bodies, they have different uh, strengths, they have different sizes, they have all these distinct differences between them. And even within man, there's taller and shorter and stronger and weaker and all these sort of things, yet there still is this clear difference and distinction. There's male and there's female. You're either one or the other, not both. So here's some ideas I think that we get from Genesis 1.27. Now I'm realizing that we're 30 minutes in and I'm still on my first verse. So I either have to speed up or this is gonna become a very long video and I do apologize for that. So if you're watching, you can kind of let me know what you think. Um, But going back to kind of this understanding of scripture walking through these different aspects. Um, So I think that uh, we recognize this end goal and purpose that God has in mind. Now, we recognize in Genesis chapter three then that, that humans fall into sin, and this distorts God's good creation. Sin and the fall, original sin, did not erase the image of God in us. It did not destroy God's intention or God's design for our bodies, but it did distort it. Because we recognize in Genesis chapter five, Corruption continues to see to, to 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 increase on the earth, to where then the God sends the flood over all people. The flood waters wipe everybody out, and then in Genesis nine, God then says, "Um, actually, us take a step back, God gives Noah the command: be fruitful and multiply." And fill the earth, Genesis 9.1. So there still is this purpose for their sex bodies and their gender roles and their need to then repopulate the earth after God wipes it out in the flood. This is post fall. We also see post fall in Genesis 9.6, that God says that you should not kill one another because God made man in his image. And so we recognize here that our bodies created in the image of God inform us of how we are to treat each other. That we should not look down on others because they're a different gender. We should not look down on others because they're smaller or weaker or a different ethnicity. We should not look down on others or kill others because why? We are all created in the image of God. It's the image of God that is in both male and female, uh, given to all people. It informs us how we treat each other. There's some important distinction there or, or important points from Genesis. Now, we can then fast forward a little bit to Deuteronomy 22.5, where it states this, um, you know, and I would say that our bodies then also inform the way we express our gender identity. Deuteronomy 22.5 says that a woman should not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord our God. Now, Austin Harkey, transgender male again, uh, comments that says we cannot take this verse very strictly because it's not possible in an era of global Christianity to expect all different Christians from all different cultures to dress the exact same. Now, I think that that is a mistaken way to look at this verse. It is not claiming that every single Christian around the entire world, regardless of your culture, has to dress in the exact same clothes, and therefore, hey, all you know, men have to wear shorts and a t-shirt, uh, and all women have to wear whatever. Um, that's not what it's trying to say. Instead, what it's trying to say is that there is a, a proper clothing based on that region that should be worn. It never says what men and when, women should wear. What should be worn is not mentioned. And as Professor Denny Burke uh, in the book um, Beauty Order Mystery makes the case where he says this, what is specified is that no one should dress themselves in a way that obscures the sexual distinction between male and female. Where there are culturally encoded norms distinguishing the presentation of male and female, these norms are to be observed in order to affirm the creator's distinction between male and female. And so our bodies that are created in the image of God then inform us how we present ourselves to others, our gender expression. And this is where we do have to be careful and where a lot of the conversations I've had with transgender students falls into. Because what we have to recognize is this, is our at least in my context, Southern California, American context, we have socially constructed gender norms of gender expression of what men and women wear. You go to another culture and that idea is going to be very different. They're going to wear very different things. And so we as Christians have to go back and recognize, is the thing that we're forcing on our students an unnecessary socially constructed gender expression or is it actually really important? And this is going to be kind of a gray area of where does this obscure kind of the the distinction between male and female that God has created? So generally speaking, uh, guys in America have short hair and women have long hair. What does that mean? That if a woman has long short hair or a man has long hair, that they're now going to obscure the distinction of male and female? Some people say yes, and some you know places have strict rules on this. I don't think so. I think that you can be have long hair as a guy or short hair as a woman and you're not automatically obscuring this distinction because kind of our, our social norms or social expectations in a sense are shifting or changing. Um, you know, and so you can apply the same thing to dress of so it's very common and normal now for, for girls to wear shorts and a t-shirt. And so you're not naturally or necessarily obscuring these gender distinctions by wearing these things. And so we have to be careful that we're not applying kind of maybe outdated or, or unnecessary social constructed gender expression on someone and say, you can't do this, uh, when really maybe it is not as big of a deal. Because again, then I think we come back to that quote that I mentioned at the beginning, where we just are, are, are reacting to the outward expression, not kind of dealing with what is below. Just We just want to make sure you're dressing the right way and you got your hair the right way. And as long as that is the way it is, then, then we're happy. And often that can kind of come back to bite us when that person leaves the home or goes off to something else. And so, but we do recognize that scripture does have, or our bodies do inform not only how we treat people, how we see people, but also how we express ourselves to people. Now we go fast forward, then a quick overview of this theology of the body where Jesus then also goes back and affirms the created purpose of male and female and that they are still in play post fall. Uh, we in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is asked if it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And Jesus responds by quoting out of Genesis one and Genesis two, where he says, um, "Have you not heard uh, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Well, if you're asking the question, um, okay, Jesus, you are asked about divorce. Can a man divorce? You only need the second part of that. No, you become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's all that Jesus needed. Why did Jesus go back to Genesis 1 and say, well, have you not heard that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And I think Jesus, is, again, is, is going back to show the created design and purpose that, and reaffirming this male and female existence, that it still remains the foundation for marriage that we see today. Um, that before there was ever a society to make this simply socially constructed, God had designed male and female for the purpose of coming together, one flesh, and procreation. And so Jesus even affirms this then in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Christopher West, in his book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, says it this way. He says, whatever number of gender identities the modern world may claim exists, Christ's teaching is definitive. At the beginning, the creator made male and female. And so our bodies created in the image of God continue to provide a foundation for marriage today. Fast forwarding kind of the last big point here, and then I'm gonna get to other aspects of the fall and kind of other kind of issues that come up is, is, is the Apostle Paul. And what did Paul write? And so we recognize that Paul had a whole lot to say about God's design for our bodies. We can't cover everything, but we read that uh, we should be awaiting in Romans chapter eight twenty three the redemption of our bodies. This is important because God's plan is not to destroy our bodies because they've been completely and utterly corrupted by the fall. Instead, God is planning to redeem our bodies. Uh, we recognize um, <clears throat> that this is, as uh, Christopher West says, the untwisting of what sin has twisted so that we can recover the true glory, splendor, and instemable value of the body. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to say that our bodies are not meant for us, but our bodies are meant for the Lord. Not just like our actions or our prayers or our thoughts or our worship is meant for the Lord, but actually your body is meant for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Next verse in verse 20, we are called to glorify God in our bodies because we have been bought with a price. And so we recognize this distinction of if, if we are called to glorify God in our bodies and we are bought with a price, then our bodies need to be oriented towards God and used for him. He created our bodies to be used for him. And so our bodies are not spiritually irrelevant. Sam Alberry, in his book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, says this, it is not spiritually irrelevant. It has a purpose that is found in service of God. He has a plan for our whole self, body included. Now, what I love about Sam Albrey's book on this point as well is that we as Christians often disconnect so much of our spiritual life from our bodies. Of like, no, it's like what I do spiritually is just, you know, I pray and I do all this kind of stuff. And and that's independent or or completely separated from my body. But when we look at scripture. Over and over and over again, Scripture talks about our bodies being in participation in what we are doing spiritually, where we bow and prostrate and people fall at their knees before Christ and we kneel and pray and we lift our hands and worship. And there's all this kind of wording and language in the Psalms that our bodies participate in this act of worship with us. And so this is an important Aspect And so what we're hopefully seeing here in Scripture is that our bodies created in the image of God and male and female inform how we treat each other, inform our value, our distinctness, they inform our purpose in the, pro- in the prospect of procreation, it informs how we should treat each other, it informs how we do express ourselves to each other, it informs our foundation of marriage, and it informs that our purpose of life and how we are devoted and live out our calling as God has called us to live. And this is completely different from, than what, what I found in, from in the, kind of within the transgender community where identity is not found in our bodies. Our bodies do not determine who we are and they should not contain us, right? This is only the internal sense of self, this internal sense of identity is what matters. And so in areas of Christian discipleship, we have to see the difference here where a discipleship that we have uh, has often been separated from our bodies, but it, but it shouldn't be. Right? It's not just about this spiritual relationship with God, but we see um, Paul and other aspects of scripture using words like you and your body interchangeably. Right? When people like think about this, when people hurt you, or put it this way, when they hurt your body, they're hurting you. When someone punches you in the face, they didn't do did not damage your property, they violated you. What you do to a person's body, you do to them not something they are in possession of. Our body is not just my property or my possession. My body, in a sense, is me. Now, philosophers will kind of disagree with this because there's arguments for the soul that says you are a soul and you have a body. But we have to recognize that the Scripture talks about this, this value of both of these being so, so important. And so hopefully in this way too long, 42-minute overview, uh, you kind of see Scripture giving God's purpose for why he created male and female, when he created male and female. We see that the biological reality has implications on our gender identity, our gender gender expression, our moral commands, marriage, our identity, and our purpose. Uh, We often see, though, that sometimes Christians stop here, where we go, see, this is how God created it, end of story. And so where I hope that you don't tune out and you continue to listen is that, yes, God did create male and female, but we have to see it in light of all of God's story. And what comes next then is the fall. And how does the fall then inform us? And so let me give you a few thoughts here. And and if you are still with me and listening um, uh, and you have questions or comments, please post those uh, because I would love to kind of also be addressing the things that are coming to your mind uh, as well with this. But how then does the fall, when we read in now Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fall into sin, how does that then inform our response to our student, our child, whoever it is that now is identifying as transgender and or, or even trying to respond to a coworker who is asking questions of what we believe about this? And again, we have to recognize that God's story doesn't end after Genesis chapter 2 when he creates all things. Uh, the very next chapter gives humanity's fall into sin. And here's what we ha- should understand in this. Scripture gives us the true account of why we experience pain and suffering, right? Sam Alberry says, um, God has given us a unique backstage pass into why this has happened and what it means. We should be able to make sense of it in a way that no one else can. Let that sink in. We have a unique backstage pass into what has happened, what it means, why people experience the things that they experience, that we should be able to then to make sense of it in a way that no one else can. And so because of that, here's the big point, because of this, not only can we make sense of the brokenness of our world, but our understanding of the fall should make Christians the most compassionate people because we have an explanation for why people are feeling the way they're feeling. All right, let me say that again. That this understanding of the fall and our brokenness should make Christians the most compassionate people because we have an explanation and understanding for why people feel the way that they feel. This is sometimes very true and it's sometimes not true. But we should recognize that this should be true of us. Um, we have to recognize this is another aspect of the fall that we have to remember where we have come from. And what we, me myself included, have been saved from, I love uh, in in uh, Daryl Bach's book Cultural Intelligence Living for God's Living for God in a diverse pluralistic world. He writes this. Um, he writes this. Where does he write this? <laughs> I jumped ahead. Okay, God has given us a unique. Nope, that's not it. Where is Bach's quote? There it is. Um, he says, "We, um, in other words, we engage others and mirror Jesus. As we engage others and mirror Jesus, we need to recall that there was a time when God was gracious to us while our backs were turned on him. And so our responses, informed by the fall, should not only understand why things are the way they are, but then understand how we are called to respond, recognizing these are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. People are not just this evil that needs to be destroyed. People are lost, broken sinners in need of a savior. We are in the business of saving and rescuing people, not destroying people with our arguments and our responses. We should not be joking and laughing and and mocking. It should break our hearts to see the brokenness in the world around us. One of the effects of the fall that we read in Scripture, uh, as Christopher West says, uh, <clears throat> is, um, or sorry, one effect of the fall is to deny God's created order and the truth revealed in Scripture. Right? Christopher West talks about that if our bodies uh, and our sex proclaim this divine mystery, as Ephesians 5 talks about, then the enemy would have every reason to try to keep people from recognizing the mystery of God in their bodies. Right? So rather than seeing ourselves in a world that God has created and, and conforming ourselves to his purpose— we, as our culture, often want to see ourselves as the ultimate author and creator of our lives, right? It's increasingly easy to imagine ourselves, and this reality is something that I can manipulate. I am in charge. I am the author. I am in control by, based on my will and my desires, and I will, am free to, to kind of do whatever I want, rather than, I think the Christian view, is the need to conform ourselves to the way that God has designed things to be. Um God has designed our bodies, and sin often wants us to reject God's design and God's plan. It's the same thing with kids. If a parent has an idea or a plan for their kid, a, par- a kid, if they think that plan is good, then they just go along with it. Where do we see rebellion and disobedience come? When you say, "Hey, Mom and Dad, I don't think your plan is as good as you think it is. I want what I want, and I want it now." Now if what I want lines up with what my parents want, then, hey, I'll go for it. If my parents are like, hey, I want to take you to Hawaii, and I'm like, well, that's what I want too. Awesome, let's go. But if your parent, my parents are like, hey, like when I was a kid, I need you uh, to clean out the goldfish tank. Um, I don't want to do that right now. I'd rather play with my friends. I'd rather play video games. I'd rather do anything else. Then that is when disobedience happens, when we don't like the plan that is being placed on us. And so we have to recognize this is an aspect of the fall where this act of rebellion or disobedience is causing us then to not see God's plan as best. When we, when the creator then is rejected, we lose the purpose for why everything is created, right? And this is kind of goes back to where I started. Uh, if, if there's kind of understandings of freedom, and I ask the question of like, what is this for, right? We, we, when our culture understands freedom, you can ask people like, what does it mean to be free? And often the idea is, well, I can, freedom is being able to do whatever I want to do. And there should be no restrictions or rules. And students will tell me the person who's most free is alone in a jungle uh, or or on top of a mountain. These are the people that are most free because there's no society, no rules, no one looking over the shoulder, no authority. They can do whatever they want whenever they want. The problem with this, though, is it only sees half of freedom. There is a freedom from restraints and freedom from rules, but there's also a freedom for, freedom to do what the thing is designed and created to do. The issue, though, is that if our bodies are not created for something, then you lose this freedom for idea. What is my body created for? And therefore, all you have is freedom from. And when all you have is freedom from, then I should be freedom from any kind of constraint, including the constraint and restriction of my body to determine who or what I am. Right, you see that difference there. In other words, if our bodies are not created for a reason, then there is no purpose for our bodies, and we should be able then to be freed from any constraint of supposed purpose and do the things that we want to do. Instead, in a Christian view, and what we showed in the creation aspect, is our bodies are created for a reason, for a purpose that then informs how we use it. The illustration I like to use here is I asked the question uh, to my students of um, a train. Is a train most free? on the tracks or off the tracks? Now the answer should be the train is most free on the tracks and you go, well, hold on though. The tracks are extremely constraining, restricting the tracks, take the train where it goes and it can only go to that one place. The train can no longer go wherever it wants to go. I wanna free the train from the limitation of the train tracks and I wanna put it on the street. Well, the problem is if you do that, now it's just gonna sit there and do nothing. It's gonna be stuck because a cra- train is not designed for the street. A train is designed for tracks. And so, well, yes, they do constrain and limit it. The tracks free the train to do what it was created to do. Take it off that restriction, and now it is simply going to rust. So I think in our our world, what sin has caused us to do is to reject our creator. We reject the creator. We reject the reason or creation for the design, and therefore we lose that freedom for, and we think we can free ourselves from those restrictions and restraints, and often it creates a problem. It creates destruction. And so we often see the only freedom that matters is freedom from constraint, including the restraint of our bodies. But the fall has led our world to be to try then to manipulate our bodies to get what we want rather than our in our bodies for God's purpose. I think the fall has also informed, kind of the second point here is it's informed and it leads to the devaluing of our bodies. Right? Where again, our bodies are a barrier. I don't love my body, my body then becomes a problem. Again, in her book, uh, Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy, she writes, By contrast, a Christian view and Christianity assigns the human body a much richer dignity and value. Humans do not need freedom from the body to discover their true authentic self. Rather, we can celebrate our embodied existence as a good gift from God. Instead of escaping from the body, the goal is to live in harmony with it. We should see that our roles as a is to help our loved ones value the goodness of the bodies that they were created with. Unfortunately, though, the fall has also affected the way that we see our bodies. And therefore, when we look at them, uh, some don't like what they see. So here's one of the things I try to help Christians understand when I, when I present on this is kind of the, the causes of gender dysphoria. When someone has this actual uh, strain and angst that their biological self does not match their perceived gender identity the way that they identify. And there are three kind of common reasons for gender dysphoria. Number one is, I would say, these rigid gender stereotypes, we see this all the time in, in, in my reading of transgender individuals arguing for transgenderism. It was often based on these rigid gender stereotypes where I just I didn't fit the mold I was supposed to fit as a man or I didn't fit the mold I was supposed to fit as a woman. Well, what is this mold? It's often a very culturally stereotyped thing where guys are supposed to like sports and, uh, and these sort of things and this is what girls do. In fact, I had a student at a summer camp, tell me, uh, about a year or two ago. Um, a, a female student said, I, I, I wanna identify, identify as a boy. I didn't go, whoa, oh my goodness, no. I said, okay, th- thank you, thank you for telling me that. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? She said, yeah, sure. I said, can you kind of help me understand what, what, why? Uh, why do you have this identity or what makes you want to be a boy? Why do you identify as a boy? And her response was, because I like to chop down trees and play in the mud. To which my follow-up was, why can't girls chop down trees and play in the mud? See, this is the idea of like, there's these super rigid gender stereotypes. Boys are the ones that get, you know, are tough and rough and dirty. And girls are supposed to be all clean and neat and play with dolls. And she doesn't want to do that. She wants to go chop down trees and play in the mud. Therefore, I must be a boy or I need to be a boy in order to do those things. These are these really rigid gender stereotypes that I think cause a problem. There's also this idea of not fitting in with your in-group. That if you're a guy and you just don't really get along with the guys, you get along with the girls better, then it maybe starts to cause you to think, maybe I should have been a girl and maybe I am a girl. But the last one I think that needs to be, I pointed out, is that there are individuals who feel uncomfortable with their body. Again, one of those flippant kind of very simplistic comments I got when I first announced that I was studying gender identity and transgenderism was an elementary teacher who came up to me and said, well, why kind of, why study that? It's simple, look between your legs. This is a, a, a overly simplistic and, and often a very hurtful response because then what do you do when you look at, say that to someone who does look in a mirror and they don't like what they see and they're uncomfortable with what they see? Or what about the person whose sight has been so affected where they just don't see the same way that we do? Like what seems so obvious to us when we look at them, they just don't see it the same way. Think about anorexia in this way. What do we do with a girl who looks at herself in a mirror and says, I think I'm fat? Do we go, look in a mirror? No, you're not. It's clear that you're not. Step on a scale, you're not. Or do we recognize there's, there's this extreme dissonance there to where she's not seeing herself the way that we see her and she's uncomfortable with the way that she sees herself and it needs a more loving, thoughtful approach where we come alongside her rather than this overly simplistic look in a mirror. See, here's the issue. In 2014, 54% of women described themselves as being unhappy with their body. 80%, excuse me, said that when they looking in a mirror, it made them feel bad. This is why comments like, do you want to know what you are? Just look in a mirror. Do not reflect the compassion that Christians should have. Right In the same way as I mentioned, you would never say this to an anorexic girl. Step on a scale, look in a mirror. Uh, We recognize there's something deeper there. Right, so when there is true gender dysphoria, gender confusion, where students or individuals are trying to figure this out, uh, where their how they believe about themselves does not match their biological sex, this is a, a painful reality for many. I've had students break down in tears in front of me because of this dissonance, this disconnect that they experience. Christians, please, we cannot take this lightly. We cannot take this lightly. However, at the same time, we also have to realize that in a secular view, when there is dissonance between the mind and the brain or the body, that they would say, okay, this is where the mind is mistaken and we have to fix the body to match the mind. What we should see as we approach this from a theology of the body and what God has to say about our bodies, we see that the body is accurate and we have to come alongside and help someone see themselves in the way that God has created it, right? So similar to anorexia, the pain from this dissonance is absolutely real and we cannot ignore that or deny it. But the response must take the body into account rather than ignoring it as if it's not important. Now, Austin Hartke again, the reason why I quote Austin Harkey so much is that Austin is is claimed by many to be one of the most uh, well thought out and influential um, uh, scholars that is pro-transgender so again, Austin Harkey, uh, born biological female, uh, now identifies as male, uh, has a master's in Old Testament theology or something, and wrote this book I think it was old testament theology, uh, wrote the book transforming and and has endorsements by um, um, uh, Matthew Vines um, and David Gushy and um, and others. I don't wanna misspeak and say someone that's not there, but anyways, a lot of high-level praises. Brandon Robertson, uh, TikTok influencer, says this is one of the greatest resources to go to. That's why I quote Austin so much. Uh, But Austin says that the only proven remedy for dysphoria is to allow transgender person to transition, to allow the body and related social expectations to change to match the person's brain. However, I think there's one big issue with this approach that we have to consider, and that is this. While not every person who identifies as transgender suffers from gender dysphoria, we do have to recognize, though, and we know statistically that between I've heard 80 as high as 90% of children who experience gender confusion at a young age abandon their confusion as they pass through puberty. So in other words, biological girls who at eight, nine, 10 years old identify as boys, identify as transgender, have gender dysphoria or gender confusion and are identifying as different than their biological sex when we simply do nothing and allow them to pass through puberty, 80, as high as 90, I've even heard 95%, but kind of average out as high as 80% of those children will then realign with their biological sex after going through puberty. So that transgender girl at uh, or transgender boy, biological girl at 10 years old goes through puberty and realigns with her biological uh, femaleness after puberty. Yet, here's the big kicker. When children are encouraged in their new gender identity and their gender confusion and put on puberty blockers to often just to say, I I wanna give you more time to think about this and process this, studies will say 95 to sometimes even close to 100%, as close as we can get to 100% will then go on and transition to using cross-sex hormones and sometimes surgery. So think about that for a second. Like Step back and think about these these numbers. If you, say, have 100 eight-year-old girls who identify as boys, if you do nothing, out of that 100, on average, 80 of them by age 13, 14, 15 will re-identify as boys and only 20, sorry, will re-identify as girls, only about 20 will continue identifying as boys. 80% go back to their biological sex. However, if you start to affirm their gender identity and affirm their gender confusion and put them on puberty blockers to give them more time to decide, about 95 to 99 of those girls will go on to transition and only about one or so will recognize, oh, no, actually I am a girl. And so I find based on these statistical findings it really hard to, to hold to this idea where Hartke says, the only proven remedy for dysphoria is to allow the person to transition. And I would say, no, the overwhelming majority of individuals will remedy their dysphoria by simply doing nothing and allowing them to go through puberty. So, what this means then is that when we intervene and we are trying to help by giving puberty blockers and these different things, we are actually causing many children to remain in gender confusion and abandon their biological tenders who would have otherwise realigned with their biological sex instead of transition because of the intervention of adults. So, I think studies are clear that transitioning is not the only proven remedy for dysphoria sometimes doing nothing and simply allowing nature and, and the world and, 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 um, and puberty to take its course will remedy the dysphoria in kids. The big thing here, and now I've gone over an hour, and so thanks for being with me, guys here's, I think the biggest issue with a secular approach to this topic is that rejecting God's design for our bodies has left us as a culture confused. When biological sex is not used to determine the definition of male and female, then what is, right? So if, if you're not male and female based on biology, based on chromosomes, anatomy, or gametes, if, if that's not what makes a guy a guy or a woman a woman, then, then what does? right? Again, Mark Hart, Yarhouse, and Julia Sadusky in, in their book, um, let's see, which one is this? Emerging Gender Identities. Uh, they say this, online content may encourage vulnerable individuals to believe that nonspecific symptoms and vague feelings should be interpreted as gender dysphoria stemming from a transgender condition. So the reason that this is is because gender identity in a secular view has no biological markers or measurable signs. It is a completely self-reported feeling. So then that question then becomes, number one is, what are those feelings based on? But then number two, when a a child is telling a medical professional that they identify as a boy or they feel like a boy, if there's no biological markers or measurable signs, then the medical professional in in a secular view has to believe that and accept it. It's one of the... Only areas of our culture where you you self-identify your medical needs rather than a professional doing tests to identify what your medical needs are. But here's the thing. If it's based on feelings, and this is a huge point, if it's based on feelings and has no biological markers, then what are these feelings then based on? And here's what I think the conclusion is. The feelings then become based on rigid gender stereotypes. I just mentioned before. Austin Harkey said it this way. He said, uh, gender confusion, he said, uh, Austin said that he had gender confusion because, quote, I didn't fit into the roles that I was supposed to fit into. Notice that. We have these socially constructed roles of this is how you're supposed to live and act, and you don't fit in those roles. That's a creation of gender confusion. Uh, Professor Nancy Piercy shares a, the story, uh, from Jonah mix, uh, a formerly a gender non-conforming man and makes the point that it says, if we are not men by our bodies, then we are men by our actions. Do you act stereotypically masculine? Then you're a man. Do you behave in ways that are stereotypically feminine? Then you must be a woman. Ironically, queer theory actually reinforces rigid gender stereotypes. Here's the big thing. What has historically been seen as sexist gender stereotypes now have become the foundation of understanding gender identity within queer theory. Right, where it's like women are more emotional. Women stay at home and cook and women do this. And it's like, well, that's sexist. Women stay at home and cook, come on. But then transgender advocates will say like, um, Jacob was gender nonconforming and transgender because Jacob stayed at home with mom and cooked when Esau went out and hunted. You take these sexist gender stereotypes, guys chop down trees and girls play with dolls, and that is the way that then you apply it to the world around us. Um, There's even a quote here um, uh, from the California Board of Education that talks, it says this, quote, discuss gender with kindergartners by exploring gender stereotypes and asking open-ended questions such as, what are the preferred colors, toys, and activities for boys and girls? This is how California sees our need to address gender with kindergartners by saying, what are the preferred colors? Boys like blue, girls like pink. So now if you're a boy that you like pink, you are now gender nonconforming. Why do we think it's okay to take sexist gender stereotypes as the foundation for gender identity within queer theory? And I think the answer is because that's the only option left when you dismiss the body as having any sort of factor. What else can you do? But here's the beauty of a Christian view. Again, from Jonah Mix, formerly a transgender male, or gender nonconforming man. By contrast, Mix says, if you take your identity from your body, you can engage in a range of diverse behaviors without threatening the security of your identity as a man or woman. When we are defined by our bodies, the whole width of human experience remains open. There is freedom in the body. Here's, I think it's just a hugely important point is that our culture says, secularism says that the gender is on a spectrum that you have male over here and female over here. And there's a range of how if you're more male or more female and kind of where you are in this range and of gender nonconforming and kind of a mix between them, and now you're you know, gender, um, uh, non-gendered or whatever. Instead, I think the way they see it is that there is a spectrum or a range in what you can do and how you can act as a man that our bodies, how God has designed us creates these parameters of you are a man. Now, how does a man live and act? What can a man do? You can play sports. You can cry, you can be tough, you can, like men can do these things. There is a spectrum in a sense of what a man can do and a spectrum in a sense of what a woman can do, not a spectrum within what gender you are, if that makes sense. So the problem though, in a secular view, or from a Christian view I would say, the problem is not your body. Your body's not the problem. The problem is these rigid gender stereotypes that cause individuals to doubt God's design for their bodies. This happened all the time. Talk to other trans individuals of of just, I just don't walk like a girl, or I don't talk like a girl, or I don't do this like a girl, therefore I must be a guy. Let's throw out these super rigid gender stereotypes that says girls can't play in the mud. Now what's crazy is I don't know who who says that, but here this 7th or 8th grade girl believed that and was causing gender confusion for her sometimes, I just to kind of point this out, I, I think the church sometimes can reinforce this where, you know, the the men's group, and I've had individuals tell me this, where, you know, the, the the men go on a retreat and it's all about, you know, shooting guns and chopping down trees and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they're like, but I don't like that stuff. Do I not go on the men's retreat? That's gonna make me feel awkward. I don't fit in there, right? There's that aspect of gender confusion is sometimes caused by not fitting in with your group, right? So if we kind of, reinforce some of these stereotypes, even within the church or within other homes or whatever, that can sometimes cause the gender confusion within our own students or our own kids. Now, kind of c- continuing on, um, there, it is important to point out that there are traits that are more typical of women and other traits that are more typical of men. But as Sam Albrey points it, and again, his book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, he says, if, say, gentleness is more typical of women, it isn't equally true of all women to the same extent. And some men are gentler than some women. This does not mean that such men are in a way lacking in their masculinity. It simply reflects that we manifest the ninefold fruit of the Holy Spirit in different proportions between the sexes and within them. The fall has caused some individuals to see their bodies as a problem and others to create such narrow categories for gender that there is no freedom to live in the unique way that God has created us. But I think we should see that God has created us in this unique way and that gives us freedom to live out how God has called us, where you should not feel threatened as a man who is more sensitive and gentle and compassionate. Our culture goes, oh, you're gender nonconforming. See, transgender. That, I think, creates a problem. You should not see yourself as a woman who wants to play sports and fight and chop down trees as being threatening to your femininity. Again, these are these rigid cultural stereotypes that I think is actually more restricting and limiting than freeing. Um, all right, a couple more uh, pushbacks, and then I'm kind of wrapping up. And again, I've gone a long time. What about people who are born intersex? Now, this comes back to the question of, uh, well, sex can't be binary because some people are born intersex where they're, they're, um, their anatomy is, is hard to tell, uh, whether it's one or the other, maybe they have kind of a small mixture or whatever. Um, and so we have to say this, like, like, does this prove that sex isn't a binary? We have to start by saying, yes, uh, in a sense, uh, people clearly do exist that are intersex right? We cannot act as if intersex people do not exist. However, as Sam Elberry writes, the presence of intersex people represent a biological aberration rather than a biological norm or additional third biological sex, right? So in the same way, and you probably heard this illustration before, but in the same way, a person who's born without legs does not change our understanding of the fact that humans have two legs, in the same way that intersex individuals do not change our understanding of sex being binary. So some you know will say, well, okay, sex is not based on anatomy because then you have this intersex thing. Well, some say, okay, then sex is based on chromosomes. Um, But then there are also chromosomal abnormalities. I saw a Facebook post that was sent to me a little while back that kind of went through all these different chromosomal abnormalities and then made the case C, chromosomes don't have a strict binary when it comes to sex. And I would say, well, those are abnormalities. Just because something happens does not mean that's why it's supposed to happen. But again, that's why kind of going back to what we said at the beginning, I think that uh, where Debra So believes it's better than to define uh, sex based on gametes and not chromosomes is because there really are only two different kinds of gametes, small ones called sperm produced by males and large ones called eggs produced by females. And current research has not found someone whose body has been able to produce both types of gametes. I think that's really important. It's current research. We have not, never found anyone whose body can produce both. Your body only produces one or the other or is oriented towards producing one or the other. Um, so I think intersex does not necessarily create this third category or other option uh, apart from the binary. Now, Austin Harkey makes one last case uh, that uh, eunuchs in Scripture are an example of a gender-expansive people. Uh, Harkey says, quote, throughout the Gospels, Jesus never once heals a eunuch or uses eunuchs as a negative example. All right, we read in Matthew chapter 19 that eunuchs were men who had been either castrated for certain reasons. Uh, They were born that way, some were made eunuchs by others and some made themselves eunuchs, castrated males. The issue, though, is this. Eunuchs were biological men who identified as men. This, I don't think, creates a third category similar to those who are born with defects do not change our understanding of human nature. Right? The duality, as um, Albrey says, the duality exists but that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is straightforward any more than the presence of biological irregularities doesn't mean that God hasn't made us male and female. And so hopefully you see now in the second part of God's story, yeah, here's how God has created us, but the fall has affected it. The fall has affected the way that we see God's good creation. The fall has caused us to deal with a range of issues that people have to deal with and abnormalities that we have to deal with that are not part of God's good creation. The fall causes us to reject God's design. It causes us to reject God. And what we recognize is the fall has complicated things to where life is not simple, and these issues are not always straightforward. And so if we try to act like this is some super simple, straightforward issue that needs no or little nuance, I think we can often cause more harm. We have to recognize the difficulty of this. And that's why like, I, don't, I don't see myself as an expert. Yeah, I've read on this topic for like about a year and a half now. Um, almost exclusively a year and a half. All I read for a year and a half was this issue and tried to read a ton of different sides to where I, I think I have something valuable to present to help people think well about this. But we should still be trying to understand and learn and grow and realize the difficulty of this. At the same time, we have God's word and we have his created order to reorient ourselves when sin has disordered us. Right? when sin has corrupted the world around us and disordered things and caused there to be confusion, we have God's word to bring clarity and to reorient ourselves back to the way God has created it. Last part though, and again, I do apologize. It's been so long. Sorry, I'm apologizing so much. Sorry for saying sorry. Um, we have a good news that the story also does not end here with the fall, but God initiates his plan of redemption. So there's, I think, four points I want to address here really quickly on a redemption and the importance of it. Number one is this, that the beauty of the gospel is that God did not leave us dead in our sins. Our bodies, yes, are in a state of decay, but Christ has come to redeem our bodies. The gospel is not only good news for us, but it's good news for our body. We are going to have a glorious physical future awaiting us. Right in Romans chapter eight, again, it brings us back to this idea that we are awaiting the resurrection, that Jesus will bring life to our mortal bodies, it says in Romans 8 as well that we groan inwardly as we wait the adoption of sons, sons the redemption of our bodies. Beth Felker Jones in the book Beauty Order Mystery writes that either gender bodies are a problem to be wiped away in redemption or they are intrinsic part of the nature which God in making all things new will take up into grace. And so our secular culture I think attempts to try to solve these issues with only a temporary solution to change the body, one that ultimately does not heal our brokenness. It's Christ and his restoration that will heal us for all eternity. Now, I sent this paper to a lot of different people asking for feedback and critique, and I got back one really fascinating question is this, is what if someone goes through gender transition surgery and surgically alters and changes their body, what will their glorified resurrected body be like? Will it be their new body that they've changed or will go back to their birth biological sex? And I think the assumption based on scripture is that we'll go back to their birth biological sex. But this person then asked that question, okay, he goes, I'm very curious, I'm interested to hear, like what will a transgender theologian advocate argue for? Of like, what will our glorified bodies be like? will they go back? Now, Austin Hargay kind of addresses this uh, when Austin writes in in the book um, that that Jesus had scars. In his glorified, resurrected body, Jesus had scars. And so Austin believes that his body will also have scars. Um, I don't hold that view. I think Jesus' scars are unique and, and, and are there for a reason. I don't think our bodies will have scars. And the same reason, like, if you have uh, lose a limb for, in an accident or war or whatever, I don't think you go to heaven with that lost limb. Um, I think a lot of our scars are because of the sin and fallen nature of the world around us, and that will be an aspect of our healing. I think our bodies are restored back to the way that God has designed and created them to be. The second way in which redemption, I think, applies to our bodies is that um, the gospel of Jesus not only restores our bodies in the end, but it's also focused on redeeming our desires and not repressing them. Many in the transgender community um, see the Christian view of gender binary as being this oppressive view, or even worse, needing of being discarded. Many Christians present kind of moral living as this long list of don'ts. <laughs> Can I tell this often? I was at a summer camp where a student came into my breakout session. And I said, hey, I was the former breakout session. And he goes, well, I, we just learned the big long list of don'ts. Uh, you know, don't have sex, don't do drugs, don't smoke, and don't do this kind of stuff. We often present the same thing, this long list of don'ts. But Christ instead is pointing us to a better yes. See, our culture promises this immediate gratification through the indulgence of our desires, right? And Christopher West talks about this in his book, Um, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, where, 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 where then the church adopts this idea and then teaches what he calls the starvation diet, where just don't have sex, just starve yourself, don't indulge, don't engage. He says, well, there's only so long someone can starve before they have to give in, and often the culture's fast food gospel wins out over a Christian starvation diet. The problem, though, is that, that, only, that, that, that that's not what Scripture taught. That's not what Jesus taught. That it only is a starvation gospel when we don't give people the why behind the what. We don't say, why you don't indulge in this. We just say, well, just don't. Well, you don't because there's something better waiting for you. Don't drink this coffee because there's a better coffee. Don't eat this food because there's better food. Or don't eat this food because it is rotten and it will hurt you. You will get sick. There's a reason why you shouldn't eat this. There's something better over here. Rather than just stop it, don't. We need to address the why. And so um, the truth is uh, Christ did not come to repress our desires. He came to redeem them, to heal them to redirect human hunger and thirst back to his eternal banquet of love. This is, again, from Christopher West. And so the beauty, that, this is the second thing, the redemption shows the redemption of not only our bodies, but the redemption of our desires. And I think this is a beautiful thing that we can give to a starving world who is being becoming sick on this fast food diet of immediate gratification of desires. We have something beautiful to offer. Number three, I think that the God's plan of restoration is also good for our world. It's good for us. Contrary to our culture's view that following God uh, is, uh, the God's idea is dehumanizing, is homophobic, is transphobic. uh, I would say that no, God's view is never dehumanizing. His plan includes what is best for us, even though we may not see it that way in the moment. Right? It can be helpful when trying to, 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 help, to keep this in mind when trying to kind of persuade or explain your views to others. That the vision that we set forth in culture, Christians, needs to not only be true, but good and beautiful as well. Right? If you want kind of to think more about this, you can go back to my interview with Paul Gould, and I'll make it kind of pop up here in the corner afterwards. Um. But yes, we have truth on our side, but the Christian story is is truth, good, and beauty. What is true, good, and beautiful. And our our story, our our culture is captivated by beautiful stories, but often are, are missing truth. Christians sometimes come in the opposite, where we, here's a bunch of truth, but it's not necessarily showing what is good or beautiful. We have a way of bringing God's true, good, and beautiful plan into light. I think people are drawn to things that are true, good, and beautiful. And I think that our message then can become more persuasive when we see how God's plan for our bodies is also true, good, and beautiful. Um, finally, final point on the redemption transformation. I think that we have to recognize as transformed Christians who understand transgenderism within God's big story that people are the goal, not the enemy, as I addressed in the beginning. There is a social aspect. I think this is a huge, important distinction. (laughs) There's a lot of important things here. Um, Hopefully it's not too much information. Again, I'm gonna be making my paper available to you. So if you're listening on podcast or radio, send me an email, ryan at think-well.org, and I'll sign you up for that. If you're watching on YouTube, go to the description below and sign up for my uh, email newsletter and one of the options, I think, to just get more from ThinkWell or something, and I'll send this to you to kind of work through, and you can have it to reference. But there's a social aspect of this topic, and there are laws and rules and, and all this kind of legal stuff that has to be addressed, but we, we have to recognize that there are also human beings whose bodies are created in the image of God that are hurting, that are struggling. Again, Austin Harkey shares that when people started to get to know Austin, says, uh, he says, quote, "It helped them move." from thinking about transgender people as an issue to seeing us as human beings. We as Christians are engaging with human beings who are created by God, fallen, and are in need of being redeemed. Everyone out there, not just transgender people, everyone out there are under control of sin. And our struggle as Christians is ultimately against the cosmic powers in the present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 talks about. If we recognize that, then this should change how we see the people we're talking to, right? If I see the person across from me, as Daryl Bach says, not as an enemy, but as one who needs to be recovered, as lost, needing to be found, then I engage differently. I think this is how we are called to be part of God's redemptive plan until the return of Christ, that we recognize how people are created. We see how sin has caused corruption and fallenness and brokenness, and then we understand God's plan of redemption and has called us as Christians today to participate in that plan. And I think this will radically change how we understand and treat this topic. And so in kind of conclusion here, I think that Scripture is clear that God has created us male and female for a purpose. Our bodies are not an accident, but allow us to live and fulfill our divine calling. Our fall into sin did not erase God's design. The image of God is still at work in us, informing our identity, our meaning, our purpose, our value, informing how we treat others, express ourselves to others, and it even provides continued foundation for marriage. This fallen world, though, provides us with many challenges, including body image issues, gender confusion, intersex, and a misunderstanding of God's word. But fortunately, we are not left there. Christ is in the process of redeeming all things. He has called us to participate in his redemptive work. This is the glorious task that awaits us, all believers. And I hope that taking this deeper dive through Scripture, and I hope that for you, seeing transgenderism within the context of creation, fall, redemption, will affect and change how you respond. Hopefully, the beginning part and the middle will help you more fully ground and support your belief of gender being, uh, and biological sex being a binary, male and female. How God has created it and purposed it, uh, give a more theological foundation for that, as well as I hope then that provides a more loving, thoughtful, biblical response to some of the other issues and challenges that come up. So um, that was kind of a, a, a summary, a work through of kind of some of my research. Now there's a whole lot more. And so again, let me just say this, that there's, there's more objections and more arguments and more challenges that I could not get to. And then there's more just practical questions I couldn't address. And so my hope is this, My hope is to continue working on this throughout the next uh, little bit of time and to to then create a resource uh, that can be given out, small booklet, kind of works through these different aspects, helping youth workers and parents who don't have a whole lot of time to form deep convictions, form a slightly more robust, deeper, well-thought-out conviction so that we can move away from this kind of surface-level understanding that causes us to respond in shallow ways that often harm and we can give a more thoughtful, deeper theological vision for what God has to say about our body. So again, uh, starting today through the end of the year. My generous monthly supporters have offered above and beyond contributions to the total of $13,230, trying to challenge you and encourage you to participate with this ministry. Again, I've been able to to speak to over 5,500 people live. Over 30,000 have listened through YouTube, podcast, and radio. Others are receiving my monthly training letter, or not I guess not monthly, but my training letter and Instagram live Mondays and other things that I'm doing. And so a donation to ThinkWell, not only is fully tax deductible as we are a 501c3, and not only will be doubled because of monthly supporters that are going to double anything up to $13,000, but it will continue to help me and ThinkWell continue to provide thoughtful responses to difficult cultural challenges that the church is facing, hopefully coming alongside you, training you, equipping you to think well and engage the culture well. And so if you have benefited from this work, not only can you like, share, and subscribe, but if you want to prayerfully consider joining financially from now to the end of the year, all of your gifts will be matched and doubled and will allow us to continue this ministry and continue to expand the reach of think well, not only hopefully publishing this theology of the body, but also future projects that I'm working on as well to provide a series of resources for Christians, the church, and for youth workers. This next generation is in desperate need of thoughtful answers. They are being challenged like no way before, and we need more Christians to step up, to come alongside and help them think through these issues. So hopefully, I've showed kind of what I've been working on recently. Hopefully, you kind of see that this is helpful. I hope it was helpful. I'd love to get your comments and thoughts and make changes and adjustments and add more questions and things that come to mind and make sure everything is kind of addressed that is thought of. Because the worst thing to do is to read something and go, ah, but that doesn't answer the main questions I'm thinking. And so I would love your feedback so I can kind of make those additions before kind of sending this out officially. So with that, uh, I want to thank you again for joining me today in this very long, long live stream. And again, remind you that on Friday... I'm going to be interviewing uh, Dr. Richard Howe on has Science, Disproven Miracles, and the Supernatural. Hopefully another really interesting show. And then again, a lot of other interviews popping up. So if you don't want to miss anything coming up in the future, uh, please like uh, and subscribe. And so you can kind of catch those things. And again, hopefully this is a blessing to you and you can share it with those around you and to hopefully also encourage, bless, and equip them to deal with this very difficult, very challenging topic of So I hope this was encouragement. I challenge you to continue to think well about God, Christianity, and Jesus because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everyone, and I'll see you on Friday. Until then, God bless.